Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, December 18th, we are studying 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. St. Paul comes to his main point of teaching much more quickly in his second epistle to the Christians in Thessalonica. He writes once again about the Lord's second coming, but emphasizes different aspects this time concerning the unfaithfulness that will arise within the church leading up to that day. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe is the pastor at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be with you again today. Uh, so, Pastor Hoppe, as we get started this morning, give us some context. What have we seen so far in, in this epistle that we need to know going into today's text? Well, essentially, you know, we're, we've just had kind of the uh, first first chapter, of course, and as you mentioned here, he, obviously this is a second letter. I suppose that's important as well, and so there is some... Uh, what do you want to say, not not critiquing, but some kind of uh, being a little more clear about particular things in Second Thessalonians rather than First, and that, that seems to have uh, particularly been needed, not only because uh, perhaps, you know, the actual words of First Thessalonians, uh, the, the readers did not read them properly, or at least did not apply them properly, maybe is a better way to put that, but also there's some false teaching going on in the Church, and the combination of those things uh, seems to have confused people as to actually how people, uh, while expecting the coming of the Lord, what that meant, uh, especially it seems for their their day-to-day uh, life. And so uh, he's really getting them uh, uh, kind of trying to say, okay, uh, all that stuff I said last time is, is certainly true, but I need to clarify uh, a few things here. Uh, and uh, he, he now is also, he's already mentioned here, you know, that there's a persecution coming, uh, or persecution already beginning, uh, and so he's, uh, you know, reminds them that, that the judge, Jesus, is, is coming, uh, and then kind of, you know, uh, goes into, I think in our part of the text, really goes into kind of the, the, the meat of the teaching, or the, you know, the specifics of what he wishes uh, to kind of bring before them. He does, and he gets to it much more quickly than he did in First Thessalonians. He spent a lot of time in that letter reminding the Thessalonians of his relationship, his ministry with them, before he really got into the heart of the doctrine. Here, having done that in his first epistle and, and giving a brief greeting already, he just jumps right in here in chapter 2. And probably the best way to, to talk about it is just to go ahead and read it. So we are in Second Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the text for today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Rob, as we get going into this text, just a, an overarching question for you first. When you think about the texts that deal with the end times, Christ's second return, of which this would seem to be one, how would you, how would you rank 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 here in terms of its clarity and how we would use it in terms of interpreting other scripture passages. I think we would, would say that when it comes to interpreting scripture, we want to use the clear passages to interpret the unclear ones. So where, where would you put this text in that lineup? Is this one of the clearer ones that we should be using to interpret other passages, or is this one of the less clear ones that we need other passages to help interpret? What do you think? Well, I guess I would say, I think, I think there's a, a, a little bit of both here. I think there's definitely some uh, general patterns here that are pretty clear that that kind of lay down uh, sort of what what is going to happen and also how we're to uh, think about those things and what you know again kind of especially for our daily lives and our, our hopes uh, in regards to this and how how that orders our life. I think there's some clarity there um, when you get down into some of the specifics of the details of who's being spoken of. Right, that's maybe where. Uh, we get some of these things where we're a little bit um, not as sure. You know, it's it's some of these passages that that will say something like, uh, you know, uh, let the reader understand, or you know, and we kind of sitting two thousand later, two thousand years later, go, I I wish I was there, and I I was the reader that just understood right away <laughs> exactly <laughs> maybe what his reference was. So I I think there's a, a little of both here. You know, not not quite. Uh, you know, maybe some of the specifics of Revelation where we really have to go uh, somewhere else to try to kind of place those things all together, uh, and yet not to the other side, which I would put, you know, kind of the, the clearest passages are just Jesus's words about his own uh, return and, and some of the general characteristics of it. And I guess in my mind, I would sort of put this uh, a little bit in the middle in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's my general sense, too. I think overall, the picture that Paul paints is pretty clear. But when you get down into some of those details that he starts to mention, as we'll see when we talk about them, it does get a bit more hazy and an identification of specifics. That's not going to be as clear and, and maybe not necessarily precisely what Paul's driving at either. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. So looking then at the text, Paul starts simply enough, right? Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our being gathered together to him, 
We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. He's, it sounds like he's he's echoing Jesus there. What do you what do you see just in that that first part, Pastor Oppie, as Paul lays the topic out for them? Yeah, well, I think first, you know, this uh, the, these two words we have at the beginning, and and I'll admit this is not. Um, probably the main point that Paul is is trying to get across. He's sort of using these phrases, I think, as just quick uh, ways to identify what he's talking about. But for us, in our context, I think it's good to kind of get these two words, right? First, the, the coming of our Lord Jesus, right? This is his uh, his appearing. The the word there is this parousia uh, in the Greek, and it means, you know, it means to be present, and present particularly in a visible uh, way, right? That you, you know uh, he's there, and that's important, especially when we get down to here in a little bit with kind of what are these things that are kind of shaking the people a little bit, is that it seems that some of the other people were trying to claim that Jesus' coming was not necessarily visible, right? It was not something like that. So I think that's the first thing is this parousia uh, is when it happens, you're going to see it. I remember just talking to a a, a kid about this just just recently, and they were kind of asking questions, you know, about the end times, and you could almost sense like they were a little worried about whether they were going to know it was here when it was here, right? And yet, and it's like, no, it, you'll know, right? It's it's a visible uh, coming uh, that that everyone will be aware of, right? Like like the lightning flashing, right, in the in the sky, uh, Jesus says. Um, so that's kind of the first thing is that we are talking about you know a return that is is visible and noticeable, and again that of course lines right up with how Jesus speaks about his return. Uh, and then the second thing that just struck me this time is that you know we get that word uh, being gathered together to him, and uh, the the word there uh, in the Greek is, is the word that we get the word synagogue. If you think of the Jewish uh, kind of places of worship there in Jesus's day outside of the temple, these synagogues were where God's people were gathered together, and that's what synagogue just literally means. But but what a beautiful picture here again to remind us, right, that when our Lord comes, he's coming to, to gather us around himself. And particularly in our world, I think we need to get this message out as often as we can, that this is what God has done, this is what he does do, and this is what he will do. That the, nat- the natural way in which God um, uh, works is to gather his people around himself. And so just as we're waiting for this final gathering that's going to come, uh, we should be in the gathering of God's people now as we await it, right? If you want to think of it as dress rehearsal, fine, right? However you want to think about it. But this is just what God does. And like you said, it's what he's going to do on the last day. Um, And because those two things are going to happen, we don't have to be shaken. And that, that word shaken there, uh, interestingly, in the New Testament, I guess is pretty much, from my studies, is only used in regards to the end times, right? And you can think about the end times are a, um, a <laughs> very significant event. Uh, and so they do kind of, thinking about them, I think uh, your, your hearers would understand this, right? They are uh, things that can shake you because they are of eternal consequence, right? They're not. This is not uh, what you're going to have for breakfast or something like that. Um, and so the the idea, though, that the Lord is going to visibly appear and that He's going to gather His people—that's the comfort that stands against any sort of shakenness we could have when we think about that last day. And the matter of shakenness comes up particularly here because. Among the Thessalonians, there's been some false teaching, and Paul brings it out 
right here in, at the end of verse 2, he, he mentions what might have been causing them to be shaken or alarmed. What do we, what do we know about this false teaching that was happening there in, in Thessalonica? Yeah, some have suggested, and I think they're probably right, that, that Paul almost, um, he isn't certain, um, quite frankly, what exactly has caused it. It almost sounds like he's heard uh, several different versions, perhaps, or maybe there were ser- several different things. Those are the two options. Uh, but, you know, whether it was a, a spirit there, probably meaning some sort of, uh, you know, someone claiming to, to have a, a revelation of something or a more normal spoken word or a, or a letter that appeared to be from Paul uh, saying this, uh, the, the only scriptural reference we really can make here uh, is in Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. Uh, Paul there is talking about false teachers, and he, he talks about, you know, he says their talk is going to spread like gangrene, right, which is not something you want to spread. Um, and he, he mentions there two uh, men. He says among them are Hymenius and Philetus, uh, who have swerved from the truth, and then he says, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Um, and so if there's a specific reference, right, that he's referring to, it, it might be to these two particular false teachers. Uh, and from what we can gather from uh, other sources and things like that, these two seem to be uh, saying that the resurrection, as I mentioned before, did not happen in a visible way, or we might say in a bodily way, you know, a bodily reappearing of Christ, uh, but that it happened instead in sort of a spiritual sense, that there was uh, some sort of coming, uh, almost uh, similar to how um, some people interpret the last time, speaking of, you know, a, a rapture, where sort of all of a sudden, uh, although I, they would at least admit, I think, there, there's a bodily nature to it, um, <clears throat> but they seem to be saying here that, well, it happened, right? This <laughs> spiritual uh, coming of the Lord happened, and, and uh, almost you, you kind of missed it, right? Which is uh, part of why they might be shaken, right, is because uh, they might have thought that they they should be much more aware of that if it happened, if not directly involved in it. If that kind of makes sense. Hmm. So, well, it, it does because you know when when I think like, well, how could they have missed the day of the Lord? From everything else we read in Scripture, it seems like that's not the sort of thing you would miss. But if they've been taught that, or they've been taught in this false teaching that the day of the Lord is something only spiritual, it's not going to be this bodily thing that we see elsewhere, then then that, that does make sense why this false teaching would have, you know, caused such trouble. But maybe that's that's worth our time to talk a little about, Pastor Hoppy, is, is the matter of false teaching. On, on the one hand, you know, we're talking about the end times, and like you said, well, it, I mean, it is important, more important than what you ate for breakfast, but at the same time, it's, it's probably a long way off. What's, what's the big deal if we don't quite get it right, Pastor Hoppy? Yeah, right. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a specific application here to the end times, but a much more general application. You know, we, we really do, um, I, I know as a pastor, sometimes you'll you'll hear this uh, as you're teaching Bible class, or particularly any time you're sort of contrasting what um, one group of Christians confess and what another group of Christians confess, or even contrasting what the church confesses to what the world confesses, and, and you kind of get from some people sort of an attitude of, gosh, this seems really nitpicky, right? Why does it matter? Why are we all that concerned? You know, if we, uh, especially among Christians, you know, if we all in some way say that we believe in Christ, does it really matter? And I really like, uh, as I was reading through this, I uh, some of your readers probably, or your hearers rather, I should say, have uh, 
probably heard of this Matthew Henry's Concise Commentary. It's a very uh, brief commentary of the whole Bible, and it's not uh, certainly not uh, Lutheran uh, in its um, you know understanding totally. But I've noticed lately that he does have kind of a way of saying things quickly, and he has this little quote where he says, you know, false doctrines are like the winds that toss the water to and fro, and they unsettle the mind of men, which are as unstable as water. Right, so it, the picture here is why does false doctrine matter? Because unfortunately, right, in our sinful condition, we are easily uh, jostled. Right, uh, think of the water, you know, sitting in a cup, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, even a little tremor of an earthquake, if you're in a place where those things happen, right, uh, will shake that water. And this is kind of the idea here: is that even a little bit of false doctrine can kind of just set the whole mind. Uh, at a place of unease, and that's um, and, and that's uh, and it can be lasting. I mean, that's the worst part, right? Is if this false doctrine is held on to, well, then that unease just continues, um, and so that's where instead, kind of uh, going back to sort of the the first question you asked, this is why we want to know the clear teachings of the Lord and hold on to them tightly, and where there are things that we can't quite ascertain exactly. Um, what the specific reference is to, or how that thing will manifest itself exactly, those things we can say, ah, we'll see, right? Well, <laughs> the Lord will show us uh, when it when it is time. We'll understand fully then. Uh, but for now, let us cling to the clear teachings, and let's not get those wrong, lest we be thrown into all sorts of confusion. That's a that's a very helpful answer. It's it's not about being right. For the sake of being right, we don't we don't hold on to true orthodox doctrine just so that we can say we got it right and you got it wrong. But it is about the comfort of consciences, so that they might receive Christ crucified, the forgiveness that is there in Him. That's that's why this is important, and particularly in the matter of the last day, where there is some passages there in the scriptures that are not as clear. And we do scratch our heads saying, well, what, what exactly is the Lord saying here to hold on to the clarity is, is that much more important. And so that's what Paul wants to give the Thessalonians here. And, and he, he really starts getting into it then in, in verse three, where he says, you know, don't let anybody deceive you anyway. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And he talks about the man of lawlessness next. And before we start digging into some of those details there, Pastor Hoppy, I I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about how this, how, how we reconcile this with some of the things that Paul has said in First Thessalonians. And, and this was a matter that came up yesterday when we were talking a little bit about the sort of the overall themes of, of these letters. And in First Thessalonians chapter 5, when Paul is talking about the day of the Lord, he talks about how it's going to come like a thief in the night. Uh, nobody's going to know it's just going to all of a sudden happen like that. And, and here he says, you know, that day's not going to come unless rebellion and, and man of lawlessness how do you how do you hold those two true I mean they're both true right this is this is sacred scripture it's God's word they're both true how do we hold those two truths together as Christians yeah well I, I think this is um, you know it's actually pretty consistent with how the scriptures speak about the Lord's coming in general right uh, uh, in fact I, I preached uh, um, here. Uh, yesterday on 
just kind of, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the text for the day, but really focused in on this whole idea of, is it a problem for us that Christ has not come yet? Because <laughs> all of the scriptures say soon. And we've been, you know, I said, I've been saying soon for 40 years in my life, and some of you for 80 years, and, and the church for thousands of years now soon. And yet, you, when you really read through the scriptures, you get that these two things can coexist, right? One, that it can be any time. And Jesus, right, talks about, again, thief in the night kind of stuff as well, right? He talks about this, that this is going to happen suddenly. And yet, in another place, he can tell a parable about the virgins waiting, and that there's going to kind of be these things that lead up to uh, the bridegroom coming back, uh, and all of these kind of things. And so they, they really do always coexist. Both this idea that we should always be ready, we should never just say, well, no, there's something else uh, that, that has to occur first. And at the same time, that we are to be looking for these signs that kind of give us this hint that, they're, that this is still coming. And so um, while, again, sometimes it is confusing to kind of put together in our minds, uh, I think one of the most kind of uh, comforting things is that this is just everywhere that talks about the end times speaks in these these two ways. Um, it's not something that we just, oops, what happened here in Second Thessalonians, right? <laughs> there's, there's both a talk of the imminence, or, you know, the, the immediacy of his coming, and there's a talk of a delay in him coming. And I think that's really what we see here as well. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I, I think that's the key, is that, look, Paul's saying, hey, these things are going to happen, but it's not like these things can't happen sort of bang, bang, and here's the end, right? Yeah, I mean, right. the the amount of time in between these things that he's talking about, that's that's not even on his radar. He doesn't even attempt to answer that question. So the, the fact that you've got him saying, hey, here's some things that are going to happen leading up to the end is not an excuse for saying, well, I haven't seen that happen yet, so I'm just going to sit back and relax. Uh, see, that the exact opposite is true. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here he's, he's preparing people to live in that time, however long it lasts, because he doesn't know. And, and from, from how he writes, he, you know, he certainly seems to be expecting it to happen at, at any moment, even yep. as he talks about these things that need to happen first. So I, yeah, I think you, you handled that very well, helped us hold those two things together. So we've got just about four minutes left here on this side of the break. Let's start talking a little about some of the things that Paul says are going to happen first. It seems he's, he's mentioning two things. He's got the rebellion and then very closely connected to it. Also, this man of lawlessness or the son of destruction. Get us started on, on talking about these things that are going to happen before the day of the Lord. Yeah, I think in exactly how you were explaining it here, too, you know, some people will read these things and turn them into a A, B, C, and then D kind of thing, where you have to look at one, now we're waiting for that, and only when we know that one is fully complete, well, now the next one will start. And they, again, they start to try to kind of, you know, code this all out into how this is all going to take place. But I think really here, like, like you were saying, uh, these things are sort of seen as, dominoes that are all going to fall pretty quickly. Um, and, and so there's this this rebellion, or the, the word there underneath in the Greek is an apostasy, right? We sometimes still talk about people that fall away from the faith as apostates. Um, so this is a, a falling away. Um, most people think here, right, uh, kind of a sign of, of some that were holding to the faith, uh, and then falling away because the times at the end, right, uh, continue to get more... Um, 
uh, difficult for Christians in certain ways, right? The persecution of the world is always growing, uh, and so there's a, a falling away there. Uh, some people think it's a larger thing of just kind of, in general, the world uh, kind of more and more falling away. Uh, I suppose it could be either. But then there's going to be this, uh, what seems at least like, you know, a particular uh, entity, right? This man of lawlessness that is going to be revealed. And we get this idea, and we're going to get more of this later in the text, but right, who he is. I mean, he's a man of lawlessness, and he's the son of destruction. So what is he about? Well, he's about lawlessness. He's about deception. He's about uh, trickery and deceit. Uh, And what is his work? He tries to destroy. And I think there's a little good news here, too. He's also the son of destruction in the sense that he will be destroyed. And we'll get that when (laughs) we talk about Jesus coming here. There's almost, I think, a double uh, kind of meaning there on that last one. He aims at destruction, but in the end, his his end is destruction. Um, But all these things are kind of pictured as this end times uh, going to happen uh, kind of right before Jesus' return, uh, that there are people falling away and there's this particular person that is causing all sorts of deception and and lawlessness um, and seeking destruction. Before I want to save maybe the identity as as much as we can say, at least for the other side, but with about a minute, what, in what sense is he a man of of lawlessness? I think son of destruction, you you explained that really well, and that makes a bit more sense, but in what way is he a man of of lawlessness? Does that mean he just whatever goes, or is there more, more there? Just give us a, a quick rundown of that. Well, I think in particular here, we we would say that first and foremost, he's a man of lawlessness in the sense of he, he does not walk in the ways of the Lord, right? He is he is wicked, right? Uh, you know, to contrast, you know, like some of the Psalms talks about uh, the, uh, you know, blessed is the one who meditates on his law day and night. Well, this is the exact opposite, right? He wants nothing to do with God's ways. And as later we're going to be told, right, that his work, any of the work or things that even seem powerful in his life, they are the work of Satan, right? So uh, there's just kind of a, a super clear distinction here, and he's setting himself against all of God's ways. And then uh, the chief of God's ways, right, he's setting himself against Christ, uh, and he is uh, warring against him. Uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't care to follow any rules. He doesn't care to, you know, he, he has no conscience, I guess you could say, in that sense, or at least has suppressed it so much that uh, he just goes about... Um, disobeying the law of God in every way and trying to lead the people away. Here, probably, you know, law, again, in, in the broadest sense of God's instruction, his, his Torah, uh, leading them away from, from that, which ultimately, as Jesus tells us, points to Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, December 18th. We are studying 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12 through 12 with Pastor Philip Hoppe of Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were talking about the man of lawlessness who's introduced to us in the text in verse 3. And then Paul goes on to, to tell us a little bit about what he's going to do. So take us into to verse 4 particularly, and then how that might lead people in Christian history and us today to think about certain identifications for who this man of lawlessness might be. Right. And I think, uh, as we said, we're going to try to encourage people, right, not to be shaken by uh, trying to identify uh, the specific details of this. And yet, you know, the the thing that, you know, we shouldn't uh, be uncharitable to those who try to do this in the sense that I think, like I said, there is a sense in which when you read this text in the plainest way, it, it does seem that there's sort of a specific uh, referent here. There's a specific person that's being talked uh, about. And so you can see how people would uh, want to identify there, right? That's, that's kind of uh, charitable to say that, right? That we can understand how when you read this, you kind of go, well, what is this? Who is this? Wait, can I figure it out? Um, and so then again, those that really spend their time doing this, which again, we would say is, is really not the point, right? That, uh, in fact, if you want people that are shaken about the end times, they're usually the people that do try to discern every detail of this text, of the, you know, prophecies in Daniel and Revelation, uh, even the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, you know, they, when they try to get into every detail, they, they tend to get very shaken, right? Because then uh, they're always trying to figure it out, and then if they're wrong, that shakes them, right? Wait, that didn't go as quite as I thought it was, and I was sure the temple would be, you know, in their mind would be rebuilt. We probably shouldn't go too far down that road, because that would get us into a whole understanding of the last time. But they get so into these details that they can be shaken, and we, we want to ultimately urge people, no, know the basics here of Christ's return, and that's what will bring you comfort, uh, even though there will be specific things that will happen. You're, you don't need to figure it out. Just trust the Lord that they will happen, and that He, right, uh, is the one that's going to make everything okay in the end. But verse 4, you know, says, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So we see this man of lawlessness is uh, arrogant in, in every way. He's prideful in every way, right? He, he doesn't want anything else to have any sort of worship. Uh, he wants only himself to be regarded as God and worthy of worship. Uh, now, throughout history, right, the, the question has been, well, who, again, who does this could or who could this even referred to. Uh, in the early church writings, a lot of the early church fathers uh, believed that this spoke uh, first and foremost, although they, I think, all understood that, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, that there, there would not only be one uh, sort of antichrist, although there might be a specific one at the end that sort of leads up to the end, but there are lots of uh, people who fit this mold throughout history. And in their day, they saw uh, Nero, uh, one of the the Roman uh, emperors, uh, who, uh, if you don't know the story of of Nero, I'll give you just the quick basics. Right, is that that Nero uh, was sort of uh, frustrated and out of sorts, and uh, a lot of people think he actually ended up sort of setting. Uh, the city of Rome on fire. Uh, that's a, a little bit of a disputed historical issue. Uh, but then when the people were really upset that Rome uh, burnt, he 
turned on the Christians and said, nah, the Christians must have done this, and then did all sorts of horrific things, right? You know, he, he sort of set Christians ablaze, sort of making them into human lamps. He uh, let wild dogs, uh, uh, you know, devour them. I mean, all, all sorts of awful things. He would, you know, wrap them up in skins of, of other animals so the dogs would, would be particularly vicious. So he's an awful guy, and you can understand how, boy, here's a character that sure seems like if there is a man of lawlessness, one who doesn't care about God's ways at all, this could be him. Uh, but of course, in one way, we know that Nero came and went, and the Lord Jesus did not return soon, at least to our uh, you know, rendering of soon. And so as you go through history, right, some say, well, okay, is this, is this Nero? Now, the one thing with Nero is this whole idea of him sitting in the temple uh, seems a little much for Nero, that he didn't, he didn't quite go to that extent, although the Roman emperors did speak of themselves as divine, so, you know, there might be some of that there. But this image of being in the temple, uh, the, the next kind of big category of thought on this uh, with, uh, in our own tradition as Lutherans, right, uh, Martin Luther uh, said that the, the office or the, the role of the papacy, the pope, not a particular pope, but that whole uh, office as they conceived it, that whole job as they conceived it. He said, this is the Antichrist. And he, of course, pointed here to, they are literally sitting in the houses of God, right? These big cathedral temple-like things, uh, and yet here they are deceiving people, uh, and for Luther particularly worried about them deceiving people as to the nature of how one is saved, right? Teaching them to trust in something else. And so um, Luther, in, in our confessions, right, uh, identify uh, again, not a specific pope so much, but as the whole idea of the papacy as being uh, the fulfillment of this. And then we could go on, right? Um, you know, uh, every generation, I think rightly, if they're, if they're believing in the Lord and reading his word, thinks that their day might be the day or is the day. Um, and Luther thought that also with all the things that were going on in his day. And you go right down to our day, right? If you listen to people, gosh, people have all sorts of ways to uh, try to figure out who the Antichrist is, right? Is it, is it the latest, uh, you know, this president or that president or this ruler of this country or that country? So people are always trying to find who this guy is. And we want to kind of say the key here is to know that they are Antichrist in the sense that they are anyone that sort of has some authority and sets themselves up against Christ and his way, that, that works in lawless ways. First uh, John 2 says, right, children, this is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. And so again, there, there's that urgency, and yet there's talk of not one Antichrist, but several. And yet there seems to be, again, at the end, there's going to be one kind of that's the culmination of all of this. Um, and I, I think we'll only know that when it, when it finally occurs, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, when Christ returns, we'll go, oh, that was the Antichrist. But we can, along the way, point out those who are standing against Christ and acting in lawless ways and say, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, and we should flee that, lest, lest we be deceived by him. Yeah, that, that's a very helpful rundown of, of the history, and we could we could spend really the whole rest of the episode on that. I don't want to do that, obviously. But just a, a few thoughts. First, if you want to know more about the Lutheran Confessions— and what they say about this particular verse, because this is the verse they do bring up when they identify the papacy as the Antichrist. 
go over to the archives here on KFUO to Concord Matters. Look up those episodes on the small cult articles and on the treatise in, of uh, the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. And you can hear some excellent Lutheran pastors hash these things out as the confessions lay them out. If you want to hear that, and, and to Pastor Hobby, just to go back now more to what the text is saying and how you're laying it out, I, I appreciate the way you've you've handled it and making those connections to the Antichrist, as he's mentioned, or Antichrist, as John mentions in his first epistle, and and connecting those two things and and helping us, I think. To, to be more focused on looking for Christ to return for our deliverance and not so much focused on trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. We, we want to recognize the spirit of the Antichrist so we can avoid it, but not, not so that it takes our focus off of Christ's return and, and his coming for our ultimate salvation. And I think, I think you've helpfully laid that out. So we want to keep moving through the text because as, as maybe it, it may seem impossible, but there's actually more stuff here that's still just as um, unusual and, and perhaps a bit mysterious. So so Paul points them in verse 5 to back to the things that he's told them, which I think is a helpful reminder for us as, as we've been talking, you know, pay attention to the clear things. And, and then as he, he moves on into verse 6, he talks about, you know what is restraining him now so that he may reveal it in his time. He talks about this Something's restraining the man of lawlessness. And, and that something or that someone is going to be removed, and, and then the man of lawlessness is going to come. Pastor Hoppe, again, this is some some of the less clear parts of this text. Help, help us sort some of that out. Yeah, again, uh, you know, and kind of reading through the, the history of kind of the Church's, you know, interpretation of this, you know, uh, those that, that thought that the man of lawlessness did refer to uh, Nero in particular actually thought that the force sort of restraining him uh, was uh, the Roman Empire itself, which seems weird because he's <laughs> he is uh, kind of at the head of the Roman Empire. But one of the things we know about the Roman Empire is there were a lot of struggles for power, right? There were uh, a lot of back and forth in the Roman Empire, and so what what some of the early church fathers thought was sort of that instability of the the Roman Empire uh, was actually kind of holding down this one who would just be completely lawless because almost because they had to think of so many things and who would like this and who would not and who might rise up against me if I did this, uh, who might I upset, and they needed to kind of keep everything together. And, and so I think that's possible. I think more generally, right, uh, the Church throughout history has said that the ultimate force that restrains uh, the Antichrist is, is the Holy Spirit. And, and certainly, the Holy Spirit uh, can work through any means he needs to. So, uh, you know, to, if we, if we want to say that uh, in the time, uh, you know, that this book was written, that he's working through the Holy Roman Empire or some of the, the, the machinations of that, right, that he, that's, that's certainly fine to say that, too, that that's the work of the Spirit doing that. But ultimately, you know, when you get this in all the scriptures, right, how God has a proper time for everything. And it seems odd to us, um, that, you know, God doesn't always just display his power right away. Or in this case, the opposite. Why, if the Holy Spirit is restraining the Antichrist, why would he ever unrestrain him, right? Why, why wouldn't he just keep him bound up? And yet, right, God has this sense of there's a proper time for everything. You know, this is Jesus, uh, you know, uh, before Pontius Pilate, you know, and, and, and saying nothing as all the accusations are, are being accused. And we could say, well, why doesn't Jesus just speak up and clear this up, that these things weren't true about him? 
Well, why? Because the hour had come for him to be handed over, for him to die. And I think that's really what we see here, is that the Holy Spirit, right, is restraining this man of lawlessness until the end, and then all these things that have been that have been prophesied will come true. And for this brief moment, right, this law of man of lawlessness will, uh, you know, be free uh, to do his thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's the, the overall theme here, is God is the one restraining him um, until that very last time. What you said there about the, the Lord's passion and the way that he's the one directing the events there was, was what was coming through my mind before you even and went there. You, that's where my mind was going, too. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you, you were thinking the same thing, because that, that reinforces what I was thinking, too, that all along in, in our Lord's passion, you know, it, it seems like all of these things are just sort of happening to him. But the reality is that he's the one who's in control working these events, ultimately for the salvation of his people through his death and his resurrection. And I think that's a good point of comparison to bring up here when it comes to this man of lawlessness, that behind it all stands the Lord's will and work for our salvation, that that through it all, even as he restrains and then unrestrains this man of lawlessness, that, that he's doing it all for the sake of our salvation. And, and Paul never loses sight of that fact. And I think where we start to get the very clear stuff here is in, in verse 8. Eight, where the fate of this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, is is brought up. Pastor Hoppy, what does Paul tell us? Well, yeah, I mean, this is this is you know classic end time stuff here, and you know particularly again, if you go to the Book of Revelation, there's these images which, if just by themselves, right, would be just fear-inducing, right? What are these beasts and these, uh, you know, all this kind of chaos that's going on and this, you know, the, the hail that's falling from the heavens and all this kind of stuff, and you're, you can almost be shaken. And then all of a sudden, what's the main point? Well, the Lord Jesus is going to appear. And this man who rages and deceives, and even we're told here in a little bit, right, has power to do all sorts of false signs and wonders, when Jesus shows up, he's toast, right? I mean, Jesus opens up his mouth, right? He will kill him with the breath of the mouth and bring him to nothing when he appears, right? And here's really the, the great comfort of this passage is, again, if we get too riled up about the man of lawlessness, we'll get shaken, we'll get scared. What we have to know is, yeah, this one is going to come, and it sounds like it's going to be quite a quite a you know time when he is revealed. But yet, what would we do even if we were and we may right live through those days? We're going to say, when is Christ coming? Because when Christ comes, he's going to open his mouth, and with the breath of his mouth, he's going to bring that work of the lawless one to nothing, uh, just in a, in an instant with ease, right? Um, uh, and, and, of course, we shouldn't miss here, right? He does it by the breath of his mouth, right? God's word, that all-powerful thing, right? Let, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, your sins are forgiven, and they are forgiven. This is my body and blood, and it is his body and blood. And here at the end, right, uh, be gone, lawless one, and he is gone, right? That That's just the great comfort, and really where we want to put our, our focus at the end is not who is this guy, but even if he appears, and even if we live through that time, we know one is coming who will bring him to nothing uh, with just just his word. And and even as we've already seen these enemies of of the Church, whether, you know, we're thinking about Nero or the office of the papacy, that 
those were nothing compared to the Word of God. Think of how the Word of God prospered even amidst the Roman persecution. Think of how the Word of God prospered throughout the Reformation. Um, and, and still today, that Word of God is is beating back any of the, the spirit of the Antichrist or any of this mystery of lawlessness that is still at work in these last times as we're waiting for Christ to return. And thanks be to God that it is by His word that this happens, because as Paul continues in verses 9 and following, we see who's really standing behind this, Pastor Hoppy. Yeah, absolutely, right? He does all of his work by the activity of, of Satan. And and again, the you know, key thing here is he is going to, uh, you know, there's this phrase, the, uh, the false signs and wonders, right? Um, and, the, you know, some question here as to whether this means sort of uh, that that they're not really signs and wonders, that they're sort of illusions, you know, uh, magic of sorts, you know, as we know it in the modern world, right? Uh, some some sort of uh, a sleight of hand or something like that, or whether they simply are real signs and wonders, but they proceed from the false one, from the devil. We, you know, I don't think we can can know that, but I think that the key thing is they're gonna, it's gonna, he's going to appear to have power. That that's kind of clear. And if we don't know who has the real power, right, it's going to be bad, right? Uh, it, it, it would not, you know, it, it would shake us. It would frighten us. And he says, right, this one, he's going to have this power. And so, you know, the, those who do not have that confidence, do not have that um, faith in Christ, right, they, they will uh, be, de- be deceived and they will perish, right? They'll end up destroyed just like he is. And sadly, right, why at the end of verse 10? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And here's this wonderful word again. God doesn't want anyone to go with the lawless one. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He doesn't want anyone to perish, right? We know this from John 3.16 and a hundred other places, right? Um, But if they decide that they don't want the truth, right, then they will not be saved. And again, we... Uh, you know, this is always going on to some degree, and we can look out in our world too, right? And we, with sadness, right, we can say, gosh, you know, some of these people, they they just refuse, right, to, to love uh, truth and to love the one who is truth, Jesus, right? They don't want anything to do with them. And because of it, right, they're going to perish, and not because God wills it, but because they've chosen it and because they will it to be so. Um, and so, you know, if we don't have this confidence in Christ, this lawless one has enough power to, to lead people uh, astray. Uh, and so that's why we want to cling to Christ. That's why we want to know that he is coming. Um, and that, you know, even if, again, if we would live to see a particular person that is doing things that seem uh, quite powerful, right, that we would still say, ah, we know this guy, right? He's the man of lawlessness. And I don't want him. I love the truth, and I love the truth, Jesus, who's coming uh, to destroy this one. I'm, I'm glad you brought out that last half of verse 10, that that the Lord does desire the salvation of all people. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he provides for the proclamation of his word. And I think that's important as we read then verses 11 and 12, because it it could be misunderstood where it says God sends them a strong delusion as if he's the one trying to trick them. But in, in fact, that's that's not how we should read verses 11 and 12, right, Pastor Hoppy? How should we understand those verses? No, and this is, you know, something we see pretty consistently in the Scripture again, right, that, that always when there's any talk of God uh, sending a delusion or 
Uh, in other parts of the scripture, we get this idea that God hardens someone's hearts, right? There's never a case where that occurs, and the point is simply that God woke up in the morning and said, you know what, I'm going to make this person not believe. I want them to perish. But no, it's that they love uh, unrighteousness, right? That, uh, you know, the last verse, they have pleasure in unrighteousness, and they become so committed to that, that at the end, God lets them have what they want, right? Um, uh, you know, we see this in Romans uh, chapter 1 as well, right, where uh, it, it speaks there about God giving them over to to their uh, to a debased mind. Uh, similar kind of thoughts here all the time is, no, these people are choosing this, they're uh, rejecting God's offer of truth and love and mercy and grace, and eventually God just says, if that's what you want, you've got it, right? Um, and again, even that is a, a sad thing, you know, when it happens, of course, because we know it's not what God ultimately wills, right? He, he wishes for all to be saved. Um, and but, but because they believe what's false, they love, they take pleasure in unrighteousness, uh, he does, uh, you know, let let those thoughts that they place in their minds just run wild, right? Um, his, when it when it once the spirit is rejected, right? What's left but delusions and uh, you know a debased mind? That's that's what's left when people reject the spirit and and it's working. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of of I think it's in Matthew 12 and probably in, a, in the other synoptics as well, where Jesus is talking about a demon being cast out, and he talks about it as the house is, is swept clean. And then if nothing comes in, right, if the Holy Spirit's work does not fill that person with faith in, in Christ Jesus, what happens? Seven more demons come, and finding the house clean take up residence, and, and it's all the worse. And I think that's that's what you, you see here at, as Paul concludes his this section here concerning the man of lawlessness, the apostasy, the rebellion. So, so Pastor Hoppy, lest we we end on on a note like that, help us out with. We've got about four minutes left here now in the morning. Help us bring a, a summary of this, and and again point us to that comfort that Paul would have us have from these end times teachings that he's laid out here. Yeah, well, I, I think even here again, to this is part of the thing that I don't know. I, I've just become more and more convinced of lately is that sometimes. Uh, and you mentioned this early on, that we don't speak the word of Christ just because it is right in the sense of right versus wrong, or uh, almost in a, in a very um, modern way of thinking, right, that we just want to prove our point and that we're right and the other side is wrong. We love, we love doing that, especially the kind of older generations that are still around, right? We were kind of taught to play this game. But why do we really do it? Because it is good, not just because it is right, but because it's righteous, it's good. Um, and I think this is the key, right? Why do we why do we speak truth? Why do we try to talk to people that do right now take pleasure in unrighteousness uh, and don't love the truth? Why should we be speaking to them? Not to condemn them uh, solely for that purpose, right? That the word we speak will be condemning because it's the law of God, but we don't do it for the purpose of condemning them. We do it because we wish to get them to the place where. Instead, I said that wrong, let me correct that. We, not we wish to, but we wish to be the means, right, to which the Holy Spirit is going to bring them to a place where instead of loving unrighteousness, 
they love righteousness. And instead of loving delusions and deceptions, they love truth. And why? Because that's good, and that's what God's will is. And so all of this stuff, when we think about it, we don't just even just rejoice and go, okay, good, there's going to be some that are out, and we're in, and that's great. No, we want to take the message to everybody. If you want, right, to have what is good, right, there is only one who can give it to you, and that's Jesus. And he is returning, and when he returns, right, he'll give great good to everyone who looks to him in faith, everyone who trusts in him, everyone who has received his grace and mercy, right, he is the one who is going to do all of that. And it's what he wants to do. Yes, he will punish those who have, you know, not received that mercy. Yes, there will be consequences, and the judge will set all things right. But he would love, right, just he talks about his first coming this way, that he would have loved to show up and just be able to say grace and mercy to everyone, grace and peace to you, and that's it, right? You've all been prepared. You know, if John the Baptist's message got out to everyone and everyone repented, and Jesus could just come and say, awesome, everything's good here. Now let me die for your sins, give you this forgiveness of sins. That's what Christ wants. And so let us right, go out with this message, because we know it's good for us, but we also know it's good for all that we're speaking it to, uh, even those who might react against it initially. We do it not to prove them wrong, but to give them what is righteous. Pastor Philip Hoppe is the pastor at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Help Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Hoppe, thank you so much. For- yeah, very glad to be with you and to get to share this word with you. Paul lays out the teaching concerning the end time so that you would not be shaken, so that you would instead stand firm in the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the last day is coming for your deliverance when all rebellion, all apostasy, all lawlessness will be removed. And those who have trusted in him, you, dear Christian, you will be taken together with him. You will be gathered with him just as he desires to live body and soul with him, resurrected for all eternity. I look forward to being there with you on that day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.